0: welcome to the Matters of the Heart podcast. The goal of this podcast is to talk to interesting people about interesting things related to cardiology. And I'm your host, Dr. Rahul Mathlali, a cardiologist and PhD candidate at the Victorian Heart Hospital. This episode, I'm really lucky to be joined by Professor Adam Brown from the Victorian Heart Hospital. Adam's an experienced researcher and interventional cardiologist who's going to give us a clear picture of intravascular coronary imaging in the modern era. I certainly learned a lot from this podcast, And it seems clear to me now that intravascular imaging is going to take an increasingly dominant role in the management of coronary artery disease. So hopefully you'll find this podcast useful too. Without further ado, here is Professor Adam Brown on intravascular imaging. Today I'm joined by Professor Adam Brown, who's a friend, colleague, mentor, uh, and he's going to talk to me about intravascular coronary imaging. And that is a particular specialty of his. His name is a wash in the literature around coronary physiology and coronary imaging. So very lucky to be joined by him today. Welcome, Adam. Oh, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so um, I thought we could start a little bit with some interesting history about you. Uh, <laughs> can you tell me a bit about your training and how you came to be where you are now? Um, yep, I can... Uh, yeah, I'm not not sure
1: it's that interesting for you, uh, but I'll try my best. Um, so, yeah, so obviously from my accent, I'm, I'm not Australian by training. Um, and I was actually trained in the UK uh, in the NHS, um, which, as you know, is a pretty high exposure environment. Um, so I um, decided to become a cardiologist um, by happenstance uh, and then got pretty passionate about interventional cardiology mainly through a lack of wanting to do electrophysiology. And you gave it a good try. (laughs) I did give it a good try. I want to make that very clear (laughs) that I did six months of EP and I thought I wanted to be an electrophysiologist, but I could not understand it. So (laughs) um, I I, I vividly remember many exciting electrophysiological cases that completely... I, I didn't understand anything that was going on, uh, despite it being explained to me multiple times. I, I don't want you to think there's a lack of effort on the, my
0: mentor's part. Where did your interest in EP come from? I've always want I've heard this story from you before, but how did you initially get interested in EP? If you were then, not I think I think when right? you're a junior doctor, things like you know ECG interpretation seems to
1: be quite cool. The fact that you you know when you've got those rhythm strips trying to work out where your reentrant tachycardia is coming from, okay. the sort of you kind and of saw it, the
0: problem-solving aspect of it, in you your In some ways, that. and
1: it was also quite opaque, I think, when you approach it as a junior doctor. I didn't really understand it. It seemed like this hallowed area of cardiology where only a very select number of people really understood how this re circuit could be manifest on an ECG. I guess it's the power of um, mystery, isn't it? When That's right. Really so. Then I realized, actually, they also didn't know a lot of the yeah. time. <laughs> And 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 that frustrated me. My mathematical brain very (laughs) much frustrated me. Um, And then I think the the ablation side, I I found just a a little bit – I did a lot of AF ablation uh, or assisted in a lot of AF ablation. I didn't do any, I should should point out. But um, it didn't didn't really gel with me too much. Yeah, it's a very different procedural style, I suppose, from uh – Yeah, I always liked, you know, as a medical regiment, I always enjoyed the acute side of medicine. Uh, That goes beyond cardiology, whatever it was, acute GI bleeds, um, respiratory arrests, all that type of thing. And I think that then is much more to an interventional background.
0: 100%. Okay, so you left your EP pathway, and then how did you end up on the interventional one? Um, I think,
1: uh, well, in the UK, you're often exposed to various subspecialties. So I did EP, I did imaging. For six months And I did an intervention For six months So you get a bit of Flavour of oh, things As you yeah. go through um, And then you get Your additional exposure On call And we didn't really Have fellows in our hospital So you were assisting In all the angioplasty Procedures as well So as a consequence You got sort of Hands on experience um, And it just I guess also Mentoring as well You know you, You're you very Influenced by the people That you meet Yeah uh, And I met people uh, Who I have a, Still still have a huge Amount of respect for In the interventional space um, and they acted as mentors and, you know, somebody I looked
0: up to. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm not doing intervention. You as one of my mentors. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I don't <laughs> blame you. <laughs> okay, and so… Not in terrible it, long call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help. The institution-wise, you were then at Cambridge, is that right? Yeah. Did you go straight there or did you do something beforehand? No,
1: I've always well, always always been there. Uh, went to medical school there. Um, the furthest I got away from Cambridge, I think, was Ipswich, which is about fifty miles. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> got right. pulled back again. Yeah. So uh, yeah, gravitational uh, pull. Yeah, that's say. right. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, yeah, I've always sort of been on the sort of various Cambridge rotation, Cambridge medical rotation, Cambridge cardiology rotation, PhD in Cambridge, and uh, not, not until I came to um, Monash Heart, which is now the Victorian Heart Hospital, did I actually
0: navigate away from Cambridge. Well oh, we're very lucky you did manage to navigate away there. Okay, so that's... And, and your research specialty throughout that time has really been about, would you say, coronary physiology, coronary imaging, a combination? Uh, I, I guess my PhD supervisor was an atherobiologist,
1: and um, he is a world expert in basic science, particularly in vascular smooth muscle cell. Um, he also... Uh, 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 did a lot of translational research projects, um, and as a consequence, that relied a lot on intravascular imaging yeah. to perform measurements of atherobiology where that's As a research tool, as a really. research tool, predominantly. So that's really where my interest in intravascular imaging stemmed from. I guess from there, as an interventionist, then you're trying to apply it clinically. Um, and although my PhD. Was very much based on intravascular imaging. I did a lot of, what I'd like to say, us, almost side projects, while in parallel with my PhD, which also used intravascular imaging in a more clinical environment.
0: Well, that's really interesting. So you sort of started from research and then you got to see it translate into the clinical environment. Correct. Maybe yep, a bit yep. different to how a lot of other people learn their craft. Yeah um okay and you're a very avid bike rider which is what <laughs> a hobby that's been going for four years five years now uh yeah thanks to
1: covid because i thought i was gonna cack it when i was yeah. on the STEMI on call roster <laughs> but when, I, when covid was going around pre-vaccination and i thought i really needed to get fit uh, certainly I, 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 tr- I tried to go out on a bike ride and uh, had to stop at the side of the road <laughs> um i cycled up a hill um and you know uh got to the top and I was going to pass out. That was that unfit.
0: it's sounds uh, actually like the origin it, story of a superhero yeah. who goes out, does something, fails <laughs> catastrophically. I had to lie comes. down at the
1: side of the road and this, uh, <laughs> this car stopped. And he went, oh, mate, have you been knocked off your bike? And I was like, no, 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 I just can't, just can't just get up the hill. The system, don't do it. Turns out I'm not that fit.
0: <laughs> have you learned anything about the cardiovascular system from your own training, tracking, the way you get oh, better? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to tell anyone what I've learned. I'm, I'm not sure I've learned anything useful. Okay. Um,
0: How to spend a lot of money on a bike. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> well, let's move into the meat of the podcast. I wanted to sort of talk about intravascular imaging over the time of your career what improvements you've seen in technology, maybe safety, and even just use. So I was looking at some real-world data from the BCIS, the British Cardiovascular Institute, or whatever it is, uh, and just showed that the IVIS and OCT has continued to increase in use over time um, over the last certainly 10 years. Is that what you've seen in your practice?
1: Um, I think that's probably fair. Certainly, the use of intravascular imaging, if you just stand back from an, on a global perspective, is probably quite heterogeneous across the globe. You know, we have some countries... So particularly those in sort of East Asia, I think in South Korea, Japan, where particularly IVUS is reimbursed, um, so the physicians are effectively paid um, to do IVUS. As a consequence, the use of that imaging catheters there is exceptionally high, in excess of ninety percent for all their PCIs. You flip that then to Europe, and um, where the re- the reimbursement, the way that healthcare funding there is slightly different. Um, Physicians are not necessarily paid to use IVIS; they choose to use IVIS because they think it would be beneficial for their patients. It or usually it takes them a bit longer to do that, and utilization in the UK has always been historically somewhere around about five to ten percent, depending on and how you, how, you, how you quantify it. In Australia, that usage drops off again. By, um, you know, I think we did a, an analysis of the VCore data set and the use of IVIS and or intravascular imaging in Victoria is in the rounds of 1% to 2%.
0: Fair to say we'd probably be lowest of some of the developed countries in the world, I imagine. Based, And that's f- probably because of our reimbursement model? I think
1: so. Yeah, so there, there is, isn't um, at this point, which is October 2023, there is, I had to think about that, um, there is no reimbursement for intravascular imaging within Australia. That is about to change. Um, oh. So a uh, Medicare item number has been announced for IVIS which my understanding is due to come into effect in March of 2024.
0: IVIS only, not OCT. IVIS only
1: at this stage, yep. Um, Based on the totality of the evidence saying clinical benefit. Um, There was going to be some criteria put around that. I think I know what the criteria is. I probably won't say it just in case I get it slightly wrong. But um, there's going to be some criteria about who, or particularly not necessarily a patient subset, but a lesion subset that would particularly benefit from Ivis, and that's exactly. going to be based on the clinical trials that have gone before.
0: As we'll discuss later, that seems pretty in line with the evidence. Okay, well, you know, to move in to a little bit about the deficiencies of plane angiography and why we even need some sort of imaging inside the vessel, I mean, where does plane angiography fall down? Why do we need this extra technology?
1: Well, you know, as, as we all know from sort of our cardiology training, it's a sort of a plane angiography is a two- dimensional picture of a very complex three-dimensional structure and no matter how good an angiographer you are and how fastidious you are about taking your views there is always some foreshortening or um, overlap of other vessels from, from what, what you're trying to see. So not only that, there you've got an issue with subjectivity of an operator itself so you've got to try and judge the size in terms of diameter the length of the lesion length based on no direct measurements you know um, at the time you're doing the procedure itself
0: I must say when I first learnt about angiography and how everything was done it seemed amazing to me that off an x-ray image you could actually position such a small you know three millimeter object with accuracy in an artery and I guess Maybe you can't <laughs> Maybe uh, well you, In some ways you can
1: position where you want your balloon to go And where your stent, you know, there's some challenges Within that, but you're also trying to work out What what size a stent to put in What length a stent to put in And um, You know, that uh, It's not, not easy, and obviously some people you know, As with all, everything in, in, with When you deal With humans, some, some people are, are better than it And other people are not so good at it But it induces a lot of variability And um, you know Often that also comes down to the, the personality characters of the person doing it. So, How some people are, they mo- are, for example? Some yeah. people are very fastidious, some very particular, some people less so, some people are very aggressive, some, some people, people less good
0: so. Physiospatial intelligence as well, because right. you're trying to form this 3D model in your head yeah. based on these 2D images you're taking. Yeah. And so, I guess, intravascular imaging in that way kind of levels the playing field a bit because everyone, to some degree, gets a 3D understanding of the vessel. Of course, there's then heterogeneity and interpretation of the imaging. But. Yeah. So
1: yeah, so intravascular imaging takes out a degree of uncertainty. There's you know, there's never it's never never a complete answer, but it, it takes out a lot of that variability, certainly in terms of the the length of the lesion, the diameter of the vessel that you're trying to treat, and it also gives you clues into what type of
0: lesion you're treating. Like morphology, Great. composition, is this calcified? Is it full of um, Absolutely. lipid or even is there uh, other high-risk features as you can see on OCT? Okay, well, um, and as you, you touched on the benefits of intravascular imaging for vascular biology and research in that area, which is, I think, maybe underplayed when people think about IVUS and OCT, about some of the mechanistic insights we've gotten through those technologies.
1: Yes, so it's, it, it's, it was... An maybe arguably still is the cornerstone, you know, if you look at IVAS, you know, of our understanding of statins and how they improve clinical outcomes, a lot of that really is based on IVAS data.
0: Travascular you imaging, yeah, IVAS specifically, as you say, yeah.
1: So, you know, yes, you can measure plaque volumes, you can measure plaque how plaque volumes change over time. So if you've got a therapy that you think may, um, you know, reduce the risk of plaque growth or, detect against future cardiovascular events, you can try and understand it on an athrobiological level by actually looking at the plaque and seeing how it changes. So yes, you can measure the size of the plaque, but you can also, as we'll probably talk about in a time, you can also try and see whether the composition of the plaque changes. So, you know, we're increasingly aware that statins appear to provoke some form of calcification within the plaque itself, and again, yeah. yeah, that's right.
0: And I think it's increasingly important as you know the ridiculous numbers we need to achieve um, differences in hard outcomes in trials become more and more pronounced. As as a marker of our success in this field, the more we need surrogate endpoints like intravascular imaging by which to assess new and potentially beneficial therapies.
1: Yeah, so it's certainly been used like that in the in the past. Obviously, the the issue with intravascular imaging is it's an invasive procedure that carries procedural risk. And so, you know, you have to balance that off against the potential benefits you may get, particularly in patients that are asymptomatic or stable. Um,
0: yeah, that threshold for intervention is getting more and more, especially as non-invasive methodologies are right. becoming yeah. wide, more widespread. I don't want to talk about CT. <laughs> well, you report of. CT as well. So, <laughs> um, so let's just quickly, I mean, I'm aware that this audience is going to be a mix of people who, you know, are not interventional at all. And... And so I want to do some sort of basic definitions for people out there. So when we're talking about intravascular imaging, we have a number of different modalities, one of which is IVUS, I-V-U-S, which stands for Intravascular Ultrasound. And maybe you could tell us a bit about how IVUS actually works. I think this was the first, (laughs) his face has gone into a look of shock. I think (laughs) we we all feel that way when Uh, we're dealing with the science that we use every day. the science of ultrasound, Yeah. But, you know, as far as I'm aware, it's a stick with a, an ultrasound probe on it. Pretty much, Why pretty much. It? Yeah. A thin stick. A very, very thin <laughs> stick with a very thin <laughs> ultrasound probe. And and it generates ultrasound pulses to create a 360-degree cross-sectional image, which is not what we're not getting with angiography. So we get a 360-degree cross-sectional image.
1: Great. So effectively, there's sort of two IVUS types of catheters on the market. The, the commonest one, which um, probably within Australia certainly... Um, so by Boston Scientific, although there is other providers available in other uh, other countries, but that effectively is uh, an ultrasound piezoelectric crystal on the end of a big long shaft that is spinning at so many RPMs to create a 360-degree cross-section of the vessel. Yeah. So that would be what's called a rotating transducer. Um, the advantage of that is that you effectively... Get a higher imaging resolution as a result, so image quality goes up. You can get casters now. The latest version of the Opticross imaging caster, I think, comes at sixty
0: megahertz. Yeah, so higher frequency, so more images per second.
1: Correct, more images per second. As a consequence, you get better spatial resolution, which stands somewhere around about seventy to one hundred microns. Um, the slightly disadvantage with a rotating caster is it can create uh, distortions in exceptionally tortuous vessels because you've effectively, on the table, you've got the, the motor that is rotating the tip of the caster. So the motor that's rotating it is not in the caster itself. So you've got to transmit the torque from the motor. Spin it all the way through. Exactly. Right. So you can imagine if you've got a very tortuous vessel, you can get um, non-uniform... I think it's called non-uniform... A rotational distortion nerd artifact where bas- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's called that <laughs> oh my goodness that's right. that's a long time, so that's <laughs> I think I'm sure it's called nerd ar- yeah. not nerd, nerd <laughs> <laughs> where effectively the, the vessel can look elongated and you can get drop out as the catheter does not spin okay. uh, at its uh, desired RPM yeah, because of that
0: translation right. of the actual yes. desired rotating speed towards the end of the wire of yeah. catheter. Yeah, and so again, it's you also
1: quite floppy as a result because it's got a it's got to be a hollowed out catheter because it's got this core that's going all the way up the caster to spin this right. offset. So the the drawback of those um, those rotational casters is they're generally a bit floppy and as a consequence, not easy to deliver down tortuous vessels. If they are down tortuous vessels, then you often or not always, but you can get this nerd artifact as well.
0: Okay. And that's in contrast then to the is this newer technology, solid state where there is no rotation of the device. It
1: was newer at one point, I'd say it's now dropped out of favor, but yeah okay. there there's a solid state caster um which instead of having a ro- um uh, a rotating mechanism effectively it's got piezoelectric crystals around the circumference of the outer edge of the catheter and they are electrically activated in sequence to create a 360 degree picture of the vessel. The issue with the mecha- um, the solid state casters is that they're generally at this point in time of lower imaging resolution, um, because of the mechanism of electrical activation. You have to switch one on and one off and get the signal back, so there's a sort of a time delay in each image generated. Right. As a consequence, they're of lower resolution. So Long time resolution, okay. Yep. Um, the advantage of it though is like a rod. You can. You know, you can, can <laughs> as much yeah, places, You yeah. can push it. You can almost push it through the stenosis, <laughs> <laughs> in a sort of endarterectomy type process <laughs> to get your catheter through. one cabinet. Yeah, that's right. So you can push it pretty much anywhere <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> it will go. So is your is your feeling that that's not as much in clinical use now? Yeah. So I think there's
1: only one manufacturer of the phased array solid state catheters. Um, used to be Volcano, now purchased by Philips. Um, I think these. They we are uh, there's one hospital I work at that's still Will use them, but um, most hospital or most cath labs will set up as have have mechanical
0: rotating transducers. Okay, that's good to know. And we'll come back to a little of the comparisons to OCT later, but let's talk about OCT first. So uh, OCT stands for Optical Coherence Tomography, um, and it uses near infrared light waves through a rotating optical fiber essentially to generate images that come, instead of from sound, that come from that near-infrared light, so they penetrate the tissue and then can give you an idea of um, of what's going on there. Now, I think that the receivers are a lot more complicated in OCT because you have to have an interferometer, essentially, because detecting differences in light waves, right? quite a lot more difficult than sound. But we do get beautiful, beautiful images out of these, real-time, high spatial resolution, high contrast resolution images. And so, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit to the differences in the actual images and the... In the parameters you get the specifications compared to an Ivis catheter. So
1: it's exactly what you say effectively what what you get is you get an image that is of an order of magnitude more detailed than what you can get with an Ivis image and the image that we see on the screen so we all look at these pretty pictures that OCT produces and we're amazed by it but it's actually constrained by the computer monitor itself. Really? So it's actually another order of magnitude of data behind that. So for every 10 data points that the OST creates, it's compressed to one data point that that can be displayed on a computer monitor that is visible to the human eye.
0: That's amazing. So you've actually
1: got a lot of back-end data that... I guess actually quite lost. You can use it for research if you can if you can code it out. But um, from a clinical point of view, it's heavily compressed to what you see. That's on amazing. The it's
0: like getting a really JPEG image off the internet. That's yeah, what it's, you're actually it's looking pretty at. much yeah. That's <laughs> exactly
1: what it is. And you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of dropout and and stuff that we as humans can't see and uh, things that are beyond re- what the computer monitor t- can display.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Okay, but as a consequence there are downsides. It's got a lower penetration depth than IVUS because it's using light waves rather than sound waves. That's it's right. It's a different frequency.
1: So it doesn't penetrate into the plaque as well as ultrasound does. As you can imagine light just does not have the same tissue penetration as an ultrasound wave does. So as a consequence the light will pass maybe uh, you know two to three millimeters into a plaque Um, that will then be reflected but you cannot get often on OCT what I'd call the back wall of the vessel so we're thinking way back to our atherobiology we know that atherosclerosis is a disease of intima so there is a media to the vessel Sure, we all remember. So, unfortunately, sometimes in OCT you cannot see the media, so you cannot, you don't often know how, how big, big the your vessel, vessel is. Correct,
0: you're sizing a vessel based on roughly where the media is, right? The IEL. Yes,
1: exactly. So, while IVUS, you can, you usually will be able to see to that medial bar- barrier. Barrier, uh, and OCT, particularly when, when the plaque is quite thick, you may n- not necessarily. Okay.
0: And I suppose the other downside is that you know uh, near-infrared light doesn't really penetrate that well through blood, and so then you have to replace what's in the vessel with something else so that you can see through it. And we mostly use contrast via hand or power injection, as I understand Yeah, it. so it doesn't penetrate blo- through blood, period. So yeah. you can't see a thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be clear.
1: It gets completely attenuated by lipophilic particles. Right. So in a red blood cell, which is by definition all just covered in lipid isn't What's it the, the lipid, extracellular yeah. layer is just completely uh, the cell layer itself is completely so lipid. Membrane, you can't yeah. you can't see through anything at all so yep you have to completely get rid of blood from that vessel if you're going to see it
0: now i've always wondered can we not use something less quite unquote, harmful like saline or another clear liquid
1: i think from my memory it's about the displacement so the thing about contrast is it's very good at displacing the blood. The problem with um, saline itself, it's out really it quickly. just gets washed out very understand, quickly. Understand, yeah. So um, you can do it with saline. It does change the refractivity of the light. So the, the machines themselves, when it's talking about dimensions and size, it's all set up on the basis that you're going to inject contrast down there. Light reflectivity is of uh, refractivity, I think, is different in different contrast medium, so if you're injecting saline down there it changes the light refractivity I think so the, the sizing becomes slightly different, so you have to be a little bit cautious in that if you're going to inject contrast
0: down It's a very comprehensive answer you've given to what was really quite a complex question I asked you off the cuff So, <laughs> <we say> <laughs> so you, you just have to be a little bit
1: careful if you're injecting normal saline The one time that no, um, normal saline does work is if you've got a severe stenosis because by definition, you've got a reduction in coronary flow. It's
0: not going to go anywhere,
1: so it can around for a while. Yeah, so That's you actually, you can often, so, you know, if you're really worried about your contrast use, if you've got the uh, a lesion, a very tight lesion in the vessel, you can often do your pre-PCI using normal saline. But as soon as you put a stent in there, you can't see anything with the saline. You've got to put the contrast back. So okay, you know right, so right, yeah. it's a way of maybe marginally
0: reducing your contrast. Gotcha, yeah, yeah, probably not worth the effort it takes. to <laughs> Confusing not. all the nurses in the lab. Yeah. Oh, they're cooked very well. So OCT then does come with some limitations based on the fact that you need this contrast clearing of the vessel, and really, as far as I can tell, that's around osteal lesions where you're not going to be able to clear that yep. osteum because it's going into the uh, the aorta really large vessels where it's going to wash away really quick, really small vessels where you're going to high pressure and you know power inject into <laughs> something that's not going to take it, and CTO imaging. I mean, CTO, I've seen studies, though, that
1: use... I don't understand how you can do that, really. So, uh, I, you know, I'm not a CTO expert at all, but our CTO experts here at Monash will all use Ibis. Yeah, yeah because okay. by definition, you, you shouldn't really have flow in that vessel. Yeah, gotcha. So um, <laughs> sure. I'm not sure how one does it with OCT, but there, the, the, there is, uh, you know, you have to... There's sort of cautions, OCT. The other one that I'd probably add to that is, you know, uh, you, if you think you've got somebody who's got a risk of a coronary dissection or you think you're dealing with a I'd coronary SCAD, dissection. for example. SCAD, I think there's a r- serious risk of harm by using OCT. I know there, there's a number of manuscripts that have been published about using OCT and SCAD. and In some ways, yes, the imaging resolution would be... It's perfect for the, absolutely. It, the for purpose yeah, absolutely. in that way. Yeah, Perfect. But you're doing... Yeah. You know, Particularly if you're using a contrast injector, even if a hand injector, you're often doing a relatively high powered contrast injection down the vessel. So that creates high pressure at the tip of your guiding catheter. Yeah. Uh, so and I as a consequence, I think there's a real risk of harm um, for using OCT, particularly in SCAD. Uh, or for any any case where you think there's dissection. Dissection
0: know. risk, yep. yep. And I don't want to talk about NERS too much, which is near-infrared spectroscopy. Yeah. <laughs> that fits with my, my <laughs> knowledge of it. General <laughs> knowledge, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> But NERS, for the people who are out there and have heard about it, it's near-infrared laser with a pullback rotation unit and the catheter is about the same size as an either size catheter. And the advantage here is that you can actually then get to spectroscopy, which is chemical composition analysis of the plaque. And that'll tell you really relevantly whether there's a lot of lipid in there, which has been shown repeatedly in observational studies to be a risk marker for future rupture of that plaque.
1: Yeah, so NERS often now is really combined with IVUS. So most of the catheters have both capabilities. There's a NERS caster catheter that is manufactured. I, you know, Full disclosure, I've, I've never used the catheter in the flesh. I've, we tried to purchase a unit in Cambridge and uh, it was just, too expensive. too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Too, I think uh, I think the car itself is about a hundred thousand. Wow. Each castor, and then and then you big go, ask for a research tool. It's a that? huge ask for a research tool. So we, we didn't have the budget at the time to do that. Um. But yes, what it does is it allows you to quantify the, effect, I think it's the lipid core burden index, yeah, so LCBI, it. which is effectively a, a marker of how much lipid is within the plaque that you're trying to treat. And there's various studies that have looked at trying what LCBI predicts future cardiovascular events. And similarly, what the PROSPECT study was way back in the day, which looked at, you know, high plaque Black burden, low yeah. MLA, the presence of a thin cap fibroatheroma. So you're, you're trying to work out what the, lip, the risk of this lesion causing a future cardiovascular is. But,
0: yeah, as you say, we're not really there on game time for clinical use of all that information. In fact, I just um, wrote an editorial with Nitesh uh, on this exact... They had done a meta-analysis of all of these features and their uh, risk of future plaque rupture, and um, the poor posit- positive predictive value seems to be a That's the issue. So, yeah, yeah there's
1: that is the issue. There's a, often a lot of these plaques around, and, you know,
0: you can quantify them, but... Um, yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. All right, so I think we did touch a little bit on the IVUS OCT differences, but just to summarize with IVUS, you know, you don't need contrast, and so it's really good for an Aorto ostial lesion or somewhere where pressurizing the lumen with a lot of contrast rapidly could be difficult or a problem. And also the longer wavelengths uh, are really great for big vessels like the left main coronary artery, though there is some data around mm-hmm. using OCT in left main. And Adam you were saying really relevantly before that, you know, a left main is not a left main. You know, a uh, left main in a small Individual with even some ethnically based differences is going to be maybe of the size where you could use an OCT catheter because it's not so large that you're not going to get images? So a- right?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I think historically we're all told that OCT was not a great tool for the assessment of the left main I, I don't think that necessarily stands true now obviously everyone's different and you have to judge it on the patient and the the, the lesion you're treating but oct can be very useful pers- particularly for the distal left main bifurcations because often you can get good contrast uh, pacification there um and depending on the you know uh Effectively, the patient you're treating, some patient's left main will only be four or four and a half millimeters in size, in which OCT can e- easily assess that. You may not quite get the osteo of the left main. So if you think there's a true error to osteo lesion, OCT may not still be the tool, but most lesions of the left main actually involve the distal bifurcation, Yeah, in which case OCT is perfectly fine.
0: So yeah, a bit flexible on that point. Um, whereas, and then OCT does have a lot of advantages in and of itself. I mean, the spatial resolution we spoke about, you get to really understand the intima media, the fibrous uh, cap thickness, which thin fibrous cap um, is a really strong indicator of a future, of, of a high-risk plaque. Again, maybe not so ready for clinical prime time, but I think it does rich, enrichen your understanding of what's going on in that coronary artery. And this is something that you know strikes me as a non interventionalist is really important. Being able to characterise when something goes wrong with a stent, OCT seems to be
1: Yeah, there's no doubt that um, there's a lot more clarity about what is going on with your post-PCI run if you use OCT that improved imaging resolution, I think, you know even for people who have never seen a stent before in their life you can almost walk up to it and see exactly yeah. what's going on you know you've got all these cool 3d buttons you can press as well <laughs> so you know if you're really not sure <laughs> just, keep just keep pressing that buttons and sell, sell <laughs> and flag up. but i think on a serious note it's like it's really really easy to identify stent edge complications, edge dissections. You can really, the the software is quite intuitive for you to measure the expansion of your stent. And maybe we'll talk about how we use it in PCI. But I think there's no doubt in my mind if I could choose two, all all things being equal, both are side by side, you could choose either. And you're particularly interested in the post-PCI outcome then OCT provides.
0: And and that extends to stent thrombosis and things and understanding, well, why did this stent thrombose? Is there a stent issue? Absolutely. So
1: malapposition, you know, if you look at malapposition in IVUS, sometimes it can be a bit tricky to work out exactly where the vessel wall is. If the gap between the strut and the vessel wall is not that large, you may not even see it in IVUS if you're trying to look for a small amount of white thrombus attached to a strut, you're not going to see an eye. Well, I'm not going to see an eye. <laughs> maybe that's just, maybe <laughs> maybe right. that's just maybe <laughs> it's an and issue. You've had eye surgery, I'm sure. <laughs> that served you well. Yeah. This, this is what, one working though. <laughs> yeah.
0: This is something that's always interested me is uh, the use of OCT in Minoka because I've seen some great work out of uh, the States looking at, you know, the rates of reclassification of MINOCA diagnosis after OCT, and it seems mm-hmm. quite high. It seems you get to 70 to 80% understanding of the mechanism of that monoca in. A, well, I think that was a combination of OCT and MRI, to yes. be fair. But Well, I,
1: what I would say is if I, I've got somebody who's presented to the cath lab who's got ECG changes that appear to fit with LED, RCA, some form of infarct, and you do an angiogram and you can't see anything, I will usually do OCT of what I believe that the. the, the culprit vessel will be and while some cases you'll just get an OCD of a normal <laughs> artery and you just wasted a thousand dollars that's useful, Wait, I suppose. Well, it's, yeah, useful. It's, it's arguably useful yeah. uh, but in, uh, there's multiple other cases where I've done it and you can see thrombus there yep. and probably due to plaque erosion in many cases but it completely clarifies your diagnosis it allows you to tailor your sexual preventative strategies and it, then it forces you to think about what are you going to do about it here and now and, you know, we can have arguments about whether you you should put a stent in there or should not put a stent in there, both of which I think in have 2023 reasonable have reasonable, forward. well, I wouldn't go as far as evidence for but I think both are reasonable approaches. Um, But um, for, for me, I guess, clarifying the diagnosis of key, you know, I'm I, I not, not a great fan of the term, but no kind.
0: Yeah, it is. It's I, I, hopefully a placeholder until we have a better strategy for working. I think with these so.
1: Patients. Like as as you know from uh, you know if you if you investigate these patients, I, I've had one actually last week. You know, and it's increasingly able to make a diagnosis. Cardiac MRI has revolutionised a lot of yes. them. There's a few people who have got Minoka that I'm still not
0: sure about exactly why, but. Um, if you look hard enough, you will often find Actually a cause. find something, yeah. yeah. It's about thinking twice with those patients. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe we could briefly talk about sort of the pre-intervention, before we get into the PCI optimization, which I think is a lot of the meat of intravascular imaging, but we could briefly talk about pre-intervention assessment of lesions. So you can, you can look at a lot of things around a lesion, right? You can look at plaque composition, the reference segments of where you think you might want to compare your vessel to and, and work out how bad your stenosis is, and then landing zones and then use that information to help guide your stent strategy about stent length and diameter and, and avoiding undersizing is that what, what sort of things are you looking at first when you've got a lesion you want to stent it it's maybe in a high risk area the proxel id and you want to know everything about
1: so i think you sort of hit it in a nutshell so w- what you're describing there is exactly what i do for for me in a, in a personal level what it gives me is a lot of confidence <laughs> maybe because that's i'm, I'm a generally not that confident person when i'm doing <laughs> intervention i don't know but um it um It really reassures me about what size of stent I'm putting in. If I'm using Ivasoro CT, I generally find I put in bigger stents in terms of diameter, often longer stents in terms of length. Um, It allows me to assess that plank composition and ensure that I have done adequate lesion preparation because we know that the most important thing about putting in a stent is to make sure that once it's in, it is the right size and it is fully expanded. Okay, so what, what, what intravascular imaging does is it gives me the confidence to know what I should be trying to achieve, um, therefore what I need to do to the underlying lesion as well. So if I see a very calcified lesion, you know, I may just start simply with non-compliant bloons in the same way that many people would. But I'll often repeat the OCT and ensure, or the, obviously ensure that it's actually worked. Optimized that step. Well, here. ensure that you've prepped the lesion pre- properly, because the one thing that the BVS literature told us, you know, from from back in the day, is that pre or that lesion preparation is of critical importance to get a durable, long term result. I would get to the point where arguably, you know, the stent should be. In some ways, it's the scaffolding that holds the lesion back. But really, that pre-preparation of the lesion is a critical if you're going to get a well deployed stent.
0: It's an interesting way to think you about it. Really, just focusing on optimizing the vessel before you even put that finishing right. touch, the polish on that. Is exactly, and that's there. what the
1: BVS literature showed us at the time. That you know, I think were, you know maybe the concept from 10, 15 years ago is you could pre-dilate a little bit, put your stent in, and then you could post-dilate it to make it the size you want it to be doesn't really work like that then vascular imaging studies tell us that although angiographically it it looks quite good and you of a high five at the end when you're just like an IVUS or an OCT down there, it looks like a car crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've got this tiny, s- yeah. Yeah. You know, this tiny, little small stent which yeah. on the angiogram you're like, well, it looks fine, and yeah. then you go look from the inside, you're like, my God, it's not fine yeah. at all. Yeah, it must be eye-opening,
0: you know, yeah. especially. What's if
1: it? If I think drug-eluting stents, and if, if not done with Ivers, drug-eluting stents achieve approximately about sixty percent of the predicted expansion you <laughs> know it's it's, it's terrible. astounding it's yeah, terrible. yeah when we know no that, wonder they reached the nose yeah when we know that
0: that's a risk factor for stent it's the biggest the risk, yeah. risk
1: factor so i think what it does for me is it gives me a lot of confidence it gives me confidence that i'm not going to perforate the vessel i'm not being too aggressive and yet um allows me to use other maybe calcium modification techniques. you know for last yeah. last week cutting balloons you know yeah. opn balloons rotablation you find orbital. yourself
0: going in there very often with no idea to use a calcium modification technique. Seeing the intravascular imaging and then thinking, "How often does that happen?" Or do you get a rough idea from the angiographic appearance? of I think you get a
1: rough idea. I think prefer, it wouldn't be fair to say that you absolutely need to do it, but I think if, you know there's a wealth of literature saying that if you use intravascular imaging, it will change your procedural strategy. In eighty percent of cases. I was
0: that's gonna say huge. I have some bad data later. Yeah, in a lot of the trials, that's one of the things they note that yeah, anywhere from sixty to eighty percent of people rethink their strategy after what they've seen.
1: Now the is counterpoint in somebody who doesn't believe in intravascular emergency will say, well that's just eighty percent of you know, <laughs> like it doesn't prove that it works. Yeah, that, but but I think hopefully we'll discuss data showing yeah, that it absolutely. <laughs> does. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, there is some information from plaque composition on ICT, IVIS, and even NERS, uh, where you'll see that you actually have a high risk plaque or you've got high risk plaque throughout the vessel in, in lesions of that you thought were um, mild or moderate. And I guess we still don't really know what to do in this situation. I think the answer is always going to be sec- uh, you know primary or secondary prevention to just control risk factors and bring lipids down as much as possible. Um, but does that, how does that materialise for you? Do you often see something... I mean, we've talked about this with CT before. Where you do someone CT... It's a mild, moderate lesion, but you think this thing looks really high risk. Yeah, it's you've, got got some an, maybe,
1: so you've got a low attenuation
0: plaque. Yeah, you got some... Napkin rings. Yeah, size. Yes, body calcification. Yeah. And it's just screaming at your badness. You have yeah. this discomfort as you write yeah. mild stenosis and just <laughs> think this is... This is something's going to happen, yeah. Yeah,
1: so I guess at the moment we don't really have any
0: evidence of what to do with these lesions. You know, we were talking
1: about prospect absorb earlier, which is a really curious study. Um, um And for those that are listening if you not familiar to prospect absorb have a read of that with greg stone published in 2020 in jack and you know the the concept in this if plaque they, they was a concept of plaque sealing so they were using bvs back in the day to try and seal up the vulnerable plaque to see if it could prevent myocardial infarction that concept obviously is highly controversial yeah, yeah. i think it <laughs> <laughs> would be the understatement of the century yeah, um yeah. But you know it's an interesting concept, isn't it? To, you know, can we get to a point where we're using intravascular imaging that we can identify those plaques that are at exceptionally high risk of
0: rupture? Yeah, or in, in Prospect Absorb, they took FFR negative stable lesions and, and um, randomised them to that had high risk features, randomised them to PCI with a bioresorbable scaffold. Or just um, medical therapy. And uh, yeah, look, uh, you end up with the, the results were um, sort of preliminary in terms of hard outcomes, but you do end up with a larger lumen area um, down the track. And in the exploratory results, you do. Reduce mace by about half, and there's a big ongoing trial called the Prevent Trial where they're going to look at this in greater detail. But it certainly is interesting to see whether we can get to a point where, like you were saying earlier, Adam, we start to look at vessels that aren't the culprit vessel when we're in a when we're in an angiogram for whatever reason, and we think about you know invasive or lesion level therapies for those, whether that's a stent or a bioresorbable scaffold, which would be. A very expensive but new era of
1: interventional yeah. cardiology. and I guess it'd have to be compared against, you know, um, I don't know what it was in Prospect of Absorb, but medical therapy continues to evolve, doesn't it? You know, it you know, we've got access to PSK9 inhibitors, um, even yeah. more aggressive lipid targeting with LP little reduction therapies that are probably going to come online
0: in the next few years. Who knows? We who have the Huygens and the Pac-Man AMI trial, which looked at PCSK9 inhibitors and frequency of um, high-risk plaque characteristics in the vessels, and both of those uh, show that you can actually Stabilization. Produce, yeah, stabilize yeah. those blocks. Okay. So, do we need to be doing any lesion level therapies? That question remains to be answered. But let's get into the meat of this. Um, so, what we've th- been doing so far. <laughs> this has just been entree. Okay, it's just <laughs> <a little laughs> steak tartare we maybe. <laughs> <didn't mean> rehydration. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, we're going to talk about intravascular imaging for PCI optimization, which is something we sort of danced around. But let's look at the the clinical evidence for this. And I think it's good to start with IVIS, which is really where a lot of the studies started, based on the technology being a bit older. And essentially, there's a huge wealth of randomized data where people have compared angiography to IVUS for people undergoing PCI, either for acute coronary syndromes or chronic coronary syndromes, and looked at, you know, your likelihood of having future MACE, target vessel revascularization, as well as just uh, stent characteristics. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say, like you said before, that what seems to happen is you get more stent Preparation, or more high-pressure dilations and more um, more things being done to optimise the stent. But how do you feel that translates into sort of, based on the literature, um, translates into actual outcomes and, and how to make sense of that?
1: Yeah, so I think um, the one thing that some of the main analyses have demonstrated before is that if you use intravascular imaging, you put in, as i would said earlier, bigger stents, longer stents. Um, bigger stents make sense. So if you put in a bigger stent, you have a bigger um, vessel area following stenting. Therefore, if you do get some restenotic tissue, which all stents will get some degree of restenosis, it's much less likely to be of um, physiological importance to the lesion itself. Mm. Uh, Longer stents I would argue is also potentially better. I know we've got this concept that the length of stents is proportional to the risk of restenosis, but you never put a forty-eight millimeter stent in a twelve millimeter lesion. So, so you know <laughs> the reason you put a forty-eight millimeter stent is, is it's really a so It's a really diseased vessel. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, you know, the, the current concept now is really one of um. If you look at drug eluting stents, they re-stenose often at the edges, and um, one hypothesis around that is it's about geographical missive plaque that you're actually stenting into a plaque that is just not clearly apparent angiographically and i can give you a beautiful case example of that from last week where we did it is the lady had a stent um at our hospital four months ago if you look at the angiogram it, at the end of the procedure it looks pristine she's back four months later with restenosis uh, and we ivised it as we did it, and what you got is you've got geographical miss of plaque at the top end. It's right. almost like a, a pristine vessel. She's just got one lesion in her mid LED, but, but it's, it's the
0: whole LED. So. No, no,
1: the whole LED is not diseased. So, our proximal LED is fine. Her distal LED is fine. It's trilaminar appearance. It looks completely healthy. But obviously, in that mid LED, when they st- sized the stent, they just didn't quite get it long enough, yeah, and as a consequence, she's back with restenosis.
0: So. So um, it does sort of help you guide your stent strategy, and we see that come out with the outcomes that we've so seen So this is what comes back to yeah. the
1: clinical trials. So why did I lead on to this? Because what we demonstrate in randomized clinical trials and meta-analyses a consistent pattern that use of IVUS in particular significantly reduces your risk of re-stenosis. But also when you start synthesizing the trials together, reduced risk of stent thrombosis, reduced risk of target, mar- uh, target vessel myocardial infarction, reduced risk of cardiac death—like yeah. the evidence is overwhelming there's a very famous slide that Gary Mintz produces. So for any proponents of intravascular imaging, I'm sure they know Gary's slide. And every every year, Gary adds another three or four trials to this slide. And every year, the writing on the slides gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> and he produces one slide, which is basically the weight of evidence to stel- demonstrate that intravascular imaging improves clinical outcomes, and that trial, I would, I, would, I don't know if Gary's done it in the last couple of years, but that, that slide is so cluttered now <laughs> that <laughs> you, you can't actually yeah. read it. <laughs> <laughs> the writing is truly on the wall. Or yeah, on yeah, the slide. Yeah, so so I, I, I don't think, you know, we, we can argue exactly where the benefit is, and the, the magnitude of the benefit um, which varies obviously from study to study but as we talked about earlier today if you just stand back and look at the overwhelming weight of evidence there's no doubt in my mind that if you use IVIS and particularly if you use it properly then you result in good, good outcomes which is a gr- good thing about the XPL trial as well so not only if you use IVIS does it impact your outcomes but if you use it and you use it well it does even better yeah so, that was it. a sort of, uh, sub analysis that IVIS XPL, and I think they did the same in the ultimate trial as well. So, basically, if you optimize I- the stent, right? If so, if you have a, a set of criteria where you say this stent is well deployed around expansion, malapposition, lesion coverage, if you say, well, this stent was put in by IVIS and was it met all those criteria, your risk of restenosis
0: goes down hugely, you know, to a point you're competing with surgeons. (laughs) Well, I'd be wondering at that point in time, I don't know if I've seen this, whether they look at, just on angiography and I'm sure they've done this, but then look at intravascular imaging and see what percentage of angiographically optimised vessels or stents actually are um, Optimized on intrafascular imaging. I can only presume that it would be a very low number, given that 60 to 80% of people are going and changing their stent after they see, even with IVUS, after they see what the IVUS looks and like.
1: I certainly know there are studies where the operators have decided it is angiographically, you know, Pristine. sufficient or whatever you want, and
0: then you've looked it with an intravascular imaging catheter and realized it's definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you may, whether that's a length thing or an expansion thing, you're going you to go change it, yeah. I think, you know, the ultimate trial for me seemed to be one of the better trials just because it was a catch-all. So I, IVSX pill, I think, was long lesions only. Correct. Ultimate yep. was literally anyone. Anyone? All comers? Yep. Yeah, all comers. And, you know, in that, at the three-year follow-up, you saw a reduction in target uh, vessel failure. I will say, devil's advocate, a mm-hmm. lot of that's driven by target vessel revascularization. So it's actually... Know, clinically driven need, whether that's ischemia that's felt to come from that vessel, or you know chest pain, something like that, which is still a relevant outcome. But um, I think that's probably the what you'd expect. What what you're gonna tr- what you're gonna try and achieve
1: by putting in a stent? Well, you're trying to prevent restenosis. So again, we we're talking about what what you're trying to you're trying to maximize your stent expansion, and that is a driver for two endpoints, as far as I'm concerned. One is the risk of restenosis, which is why you see TVR decreased. The second thing you'd expect to improve is stent thrombosis. thrombosis. Uh, now, none of these studies are going to be powered to do that, but the meta analyses are consistent that when you combine these studies, the reduction in stent thrombosis is massive, it's significant.
0: And okay. yeah, I guess you know it is also a credit to our modern day technologies that our stent thrombosis rates are so low that a single study really can never be powered to answer that question yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Okay, so that's a summary of IVIS, and we'll come back to a little bit about what that all means, sort of clinically. But for OCT, I mean, I think it's a fairly similar story. Although I'll throw some, yeah, maybe some. Not, cats- not entirely sure. Yeah, <laughs> oh, really? did you yeah. did you watch ESC? Yeah, well, yeah. So um, <laughs> Lumion Four, which is a large trial that's just come out, maybe challenges that a bit. But looking at the earlier data, you know, we have there was a doctor's study where they looked at post-procedural FFR with OCT compared to just angiography in people who had a, a, a an acute coronary syndrome, and they get. Better stent expansion, and they get better post-procedural FFR. And in that one, 50% of people underwent a change in procedure after they had a look at the OCT data. So, you know, change in the stent or change in the um, stent strategy. Um, and similarly, in you know looking at the OCT study, they did uh, des- uh, drug-eluting stent implantation and found that there were fewer uncovered stents down the track at six months. And all of these were sort of surrogates for a risk of future stent problems. Um, but then we sort of, I guess, come to Lumion 3, which predates what we saw. At um, uh, ESC, so illumin three randomized patients either Ivis, OCT, or angiography, and showed that use of imaging of any variety, Ivis or OCT, resulted in a bigger minimum stent area. And I think this is interesting. You know, the use of imaging adds about twenty minutes to the procedure in that trial. Now, I don't really know how experienced they are. The lab might be really experienced, but does that fit with your twenty minutes? Is think, that we? I think that's fair. Obviously, you know, you can get that time down, and
1: um, the more you do, the quicker it becomes. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you asked me how much, how much, I would have said 15 minutes. That's what I would have said. So, but I, I've not done any data
0: to, to prove that. It's yeah, just a, okay. a feeling. I think it's just important to consider. I imagine amongst interventionists, one of the pushbacks might be, you know, this takes workflow. a lot longer. It's all about workflow. Yeah. I think I
1: think the, the bar, I don't know if we're going to talk about barriers, but certainly barriers are cost,
0: workflow, and an image interpretation. Yeah. Uh, which is a whole babies. other skill you need to learn, yep. which potentially haven't been trained in. Yeah, so but then looking at the outcome studies with OCT, and this maybe is where <laughs> things don't look as good as for uh, our eye for starter. Lumion four was released at ESC, which Adam was referring to, and that looked at OCT versus angiography in diabetics or high risk coronary lesions, which really included quite a, a wide variety of things from CTOs, highly calcified lesions, bifurcation lesions, and in that um, that was powered for outcomes, and they found larger stent areas uh, with the OCT but no difference in MACE or outcomes. So hazard ratio 0.9, 0.67 to 1.19, really no clear difference. Um, but you did see that there was less dissection, malapposition, tissue protrusion, so it looked better. Um, yeah. w- what yeah. do we think? I mean, so what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Um, I think how do we marry that up? How do we make sense of that? In So I
1: guess standing back from it, there, there shouldn't really theoretically be any difference between OCT and IVUS yeah
0: yeah unless there's contrast administration somehow worsens your long term okay. outcome but
1: fair enough had not thought about that at all right. okay so apart from the con- the increased contrast use but there's no doubt increased contrast use with OCT if you just conceptualize it they're fundamentally two tools that are somewhat doing the same thing they're both looking at the vessel from the inside they both allow you to accurately measure your vessel area if anything, OCT is more accurate than IVIS, mm. particularly when you look at phantom models. IVIS overestimates luminal dimensions by 10%. So, why would a clinical study with OCT not produce the same results as IVIS?
0: It does seem unusual. And I, I only wonder whether or not there's a change in the medical therapy around this or a way in the, the Trial populations, but these are really just reaching for straws. I'm not trying sure to understand it.
1: Maybe um, you know one of the potential explanations. I know you've said aluminum three is that the vessel in the minimum stent area was similar, similar, but it was a non-inferior. Yeah, right. Calculation. So, um,
0: and Ivis oversizes your correct. vessel, is that right? Yeah. So
1: you know, if you're looking for ground truth, OCT is luminal ground truth, but. Ivis, um often oversizes. So as a
0: consequence... <laughs> That's rose-coloured glasses. It makes you achieve for more, is that Correct, right? yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So well, although, you know, there's uh, larger stent areas uh, in the aluminum four than angiographically, but only by 0. 0.4 millimetres That's squared. Not huge, That's not huge. Really? Not huge. Not compared to what you'd expect to achieve with IVUS. So um, what I wonder, and I, I don't have any evidence for this at all, is I wonder whether the sizing protocol that was uh, used in aluminium 4 does not, is not directly comparable to the sizing protocol used in a lot of IVAS studies. Mm-hmm. As a consequence, the stents that were put in were not as big, not as well expanded as what they would have been had they been using IVAS. I
0: think that's a really, yeah, that's a great And hypothesis. so
1: we, we were talking earlier, you were talking about earlier about the fact that, you know, with your light, you cannot see the back wall of the artery. Mm-hmm. So you know if you're trying to size a stent for a vessel you really need to be able to see that what's called that you know external elastic membrane or EEL, external elastic lamina depending what you will do they're both the same thing so if you can't see that on oct they've got a sizing protocol how you do it on the lumen but maybe as a consequence it's just a little bit undersized yeah you
0: could imagine that for sure that or l- undersized or oversized you're just not getting the the same the, same
1: the same yeah you're not getting the same volume gain in your lumen Okay, um, yeah, there sure. may be other issues at play. You know, it's a study that was done uh, for the first time out with East Asia. You know, so oh, if you okay. look at Ultimate, you look at Ivis XPL. These are studies that are predominantly done. Um, Ivis XPL, I think, is exclusively done in South Korea. Ultimate,
0: was, was I can not
1: remember. I think it was done East in East Asia, Asia as well. I can't Asia remember somewhere. exactly. I got feeling it was China, but I might be wrong. Um, but you know, if, if you particularly, I'll, I'll talk about XPL, which you probably know a little bit better. So, you know, you've got a lot of uh, Korean um, operators there who use Ivis as their de facto stent strategy. You've got high, high volume Ivis users. Sure, they use it a million. lot more than I do. You know, mu- I'm sure they're a lot better than I am. If you then roll that technology out into other centers or you use, uh, you know, how... What was the procedural volume of all these OCT centers? You know, they, they I think, have it tried to choose high procedural volume centers. Was was that the case? Have they got the same experience? Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd have to. I don't look know. Look. I, a really is there a geographical variation? So do we see a lot of like, um, as you know, the FDA requires um, or for for funding as well. They wanted a lot of US sites to be involved. Um, so does that create a geographical yeah. variation? Yeah. In the, the global the
0: translation becomes hard. I mean, we yeah. saw that with the um, off-pump bypass studies where, you know, in the surgeons who had had much more experience were able to get somewhat better outcomes with off-pump bypass. So, yeah, it wouldn't be surprising. And we know that from
1: the data. If you do it and you do it properly, you get better results. Yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, we've, we've seen the headlines from aluminum 4. We know the main outcome. There'll be more. You know, I'm sure we'll get well, more but data. But we
0: were. Like, I mean, October was also published in the Nedjum at the same time as Lumion 4. For mm-hmm. um, the bifurcation. That, that looked at just bifurcation, including mm-hmm. left mains with OCT, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And we did actually see <laughs> a benefit in the... Exactly. In the in you, fun, know, you know, again,
1: this is why I, I, I'm not, you know, Individual trials are excellent, but you really sometimes have to stand back and take it into context. I don't think, as a consequence of Lumium 4, the OCT is dead. You know, yeah. I don't think we're not all throwing out the OCT catheters. <laughs> yeah. And as we
0: said, it certainly has its role in you know understanding stent failure and all of that. So, I mean, there's no way you could be throwing out an no OCT catheters yet. <laughs> can't it's, it's afford it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, looking at OCT versus IVIS, there have been a couple of studies that have compared them directly. The Octavus study was published not long ago, looked at OCT or IVIS guided PCI and looked at um, endpoints, and there was no difference there. And that included in people with complex lesions or CTOs. Mm-hmm. And the opinion trial did a very similar thing 12 month clinical outcomes, OCT versus IVIS, and again, no difference. So, I think coming back to what you're saying, I mean, and this is a problem we have across all of research, is the reproducibility of studies, you know, did we just get unlucky with Illumion? Was there something specific about that population? We've got a whole bunch of data that, you know, like you said, there shouldn't really be a huge difference between OCT versus Ivis. I think the hypothesis generation you had was a great ideas, but it doesn't fully make sense why these two studies that head-to-head comparisons seem to be the same, but then individually one hasn't been able to reproduce the same results. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, I think that's why, you know, the tautology of the evidence is probably more important than one single study alone. And what I don't want people to believe is the idea that it doesn't work, you know, just from one study showing the opposite.
0: And I think I listened to the Octavis investigators talk about, you know, OCT versus IVIS, and their message was largely that study showed parity between the two, and it's really up to the operator. If you've got an Hmm. operator or a lab that's very comfortable with OCT or IVIS, well, then... You know, this should give you some good feeling to just continue going ahead and using whichever one you're comfortable with. And
1: fundamentally, not many cath labs can pay, pay for both. Okay. We're very lucky here at
0: the Hull hospital, we've got choice of
1: IVIS or OCT, mm-hmm. but there's not many um, labs around the
0: world that will be able to offer both technologies. Yeah, you know? so financial decisions will mean that a lab is stuck with one, which might not be a bad, bad yeah. thing based on the in- evidence we've seen. So in summary, I think for PCI, intravascular imaging has a really important role. It seems to improve stent expansion, reduce malapposition, and help you attain optimal stent characteristics, and that you know often comes as a result of a change in a PCI strategy, whether it's more post-dilation, larger balloon sizes or pressures, um, and that ultimately that probably does result in a reduction in target lesion failure, definitely for IVUS and certainly in the meta-analysis reduction in harder endpoints like MACE um, for OCT. You know a little bit of conflicting evidence, but you know there are studies showing that it does reduce those endpoints, and so and certainly reduce target lesion failure. Um, so ultimately, you're sort of getting the a pretty significant benefit in PCI from intravascular imaging. I guess, you know, to play devil's advocate, well, what are the downsides? I think we spoke about time, and, and from large studies, it's about 20 minutes, regardless of your modality. Um, the extra effort, I suppose this is a lab training thing, right? I mean, if your lab uses it and it's quick and some machines available, everyone knows what they're doing?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it comes down, I think, to experience with it. I think as an operator, you know if you don't use it you almost have to make a commitment to use it um you have to try and um and then you'll learn with it and go on and i think that you will as your experience with either of those technologies continues to improve, I think you'll see more bang for your buck. The more time you invest in it, the more you get out of it, like everything
0: in life. It seems like imaging for femoral access, to be honest, very similar. I mean, the more you use imaging femoral access, the quicker it becomes, the smoother it becomes. Like radial access back in the day. Remember, you had to make a commitment to go radially. It
1: (laughs) felt like this massive effort. So, my God, (laughs) let's do do a radial (laughs) case. And then, you know, now we're 95% radio, aren't we? You know, and it's just... Uh, but you, that that you know that initial learning phase it, it is steep uh, and it is time and it is effort. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, you got to make a, a sort of institution-wide commitment almost so that everyone just gets dragged along. Yeah, um, and then there's I guess one of the things is complications. Someone might ask, "What are the complications with this?" I mean, I is there really a lot of complications we see as a result uh, of transfer? I've imaging? had a few. Um, like everything in life, nothing comes for free. And
1: there is, uh, I think in the published literature, the risk of complications uh, is somewhere in the order of 0.2% risk of complications. It seems very low, from what I've seen. Um, The things I have seen are thrombus on the catheter, um, which can happen, as with any intracurinary device, and you've got to make sure that your ACT is therapeutic throughout. OCT, obviously, there's a risk of injecting air bubbles when you're trying to do those sort of pressurised injections. Usually those air bubbles are quite small and um, may cause... Transient ST segment elevation and transient hemodynamic disturbance, but will usually Don't work their result. way through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, we talked about hydraulic dissections. I've certainly had a couple of cases that I've used OCT and have caused hydraulic dissections, and they can be spectacular mm-hmm. um, because you're usually the two cases that I can think of were left main dissections, and that's then now not trivial. Yeah. That that's serious. Um, uh, so I think there there is. You Know if you use it a lot, you know, you're, you're going to get complications. If anyone says they've never seen one, they've just not used it enough. So, yep. I have had complications from using them. Well, um, I, guess I the hope published
0: is literature is suggest that those are low, yes. And, and yeah. we're yeah. weighing that against the benefits of using these, yeah.
1: Things. And I, I'm not the most experienced operator in the world, but I've been, you know, you know, doing IVIS or sort of OCT guided PCI for 12 years now, and, and I can still remember the cases that have caused complications, okay. you know, because they, they stand Cause out, they stand out, they stand out fear fear yeah. Well, I'm doing it multiple times a week. And, you know, you remember that case from five
0: years ago. That's because it's so rare. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think that fits with the sort of latest guidelines, which suggest that, you know, intravascular imaging is good for lesion assessment of intermediate left main coronary lesions, procedural guidance to reduce ischemic events, and to understand the mechanism of stent failure. Um, I think we've spoken a lot about, um, you know, intravascular imaging in Minoka, suspected Takotsubo, and... and it can be helpful. Although I, I always wonder, if you don't have a sort of a suspicious, something to, to push you towards a vessel to image, um, are you ever just OCTing all three vessels? Have you you <laughs> could do. <laughs> um, I know that I've seen that in some studies from the States. I so have it seen it, yeah. Aggressive.
1: It does seem a little bit... um I I, I tend to only, for a, from a personal point of view, I tend to want an ETG that localises to one vessel. Um Otherwise, uh, yeah. I don't know what the diagnostic yield is when you've got so a really plumb normal ECG, a plumb normal angiogram and a positive tronin. Um, I'm not sure the diagnosis that you to see think vessel OCT is busy
0: lab as well, and you're starting to do three vessel OCTs on multiple cases a day. It's <laughs> the uh, in <nursing laughs> charge is going to be
1: looking at you sternly through yeah. the window. <laughs> Hospital managers need to as well when the budget at yeah. <laughs> the end of the
0: year. Uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I think that's a really great summary of the state of the art in intravascular imaging, and I, it, certainly it's convinced me doing the research for this and talking to you that it really should have quite a big role in um, in in our in the coronary lab and probably a bigger role than it does in Australia. That's certainly true. I mean, now I'm going to ask you a few questions. If you could choose for Australia and you could have either IVUS or OCT in all cath labs, <laughs> what would you be doing? You're a health administrator. IVUS. Got, uh, IVUS.
1: Mainly because you can use IVUS for all cases. We've got okay. some, you we talked about left mania to osteo CTOs, dissections. You can use IVUS in all of them. Yep. So if you only had money for one, if I could only have money for one, I would probably choose iver at this okay. point in time yeah and um, because i think it's got the most utilization it's the all-rounder yeah, yeah. It, it's got it is all-rounder it's not the nicest pictures but it's the most job done and yeah.
0: maybe the as you said before maybe the bad pictures help you you know aim higher when you're expanding your stent <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah well especially with the trial data. like if you know if you're
1: you know, if you're looking to fund one within this trillion one context. One a lot more trial data for benefit. Exactly. That that may not necessarily be a fair representation of the technology, but it is the way it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you think that we should be using intravascular imaging for all cases? Um, or PCI cases, I should say. <laughs> no, no.
1: <laughs> uh, that's a tricky one. Again, am I approaching this from a financial perspective or a patient perspective?
0: Let's start with a patient perspective. Patient
1: perspective, yes. Okay. (laughs) There's no doubt.
0: Really, it just becomes about a public health decision. I
1: think so. Yeah, I can't see any, you know, we did talk about the risk of complications, but they are very low. So I can't see really what risk there is or very little risk. And the reward is potentially Tangible. yeah. So I think from a patient's perspective, I always think, well, if I was having a PCR. If you're on the other end of that, yeah, capita, yeah. Yeah. What yeah. Would I want it to be IVIS sort or of IVIS guided or OCT guided? The answer for me is absolutely yes. Um, but then obviously, then you're coming from a, a funding perspective, the, the, the question
0: may be different. Yeah. The answer may be different, sorry. It's good for you, it's not necessarily good for everyone. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about plaque composition analysis. Do you think it's going to be in the main stage in the next five years? Hard to say. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good. Absolutely. I, like I think we're going to be stenting every month. <laughs> um, uh,
1: I don't think so. I think there's too many moving parts. I think even if your prevent study is positive, though, the rapid change in guideline-directed medical therapy that continues to evolve always creates this uncertainty about it's applicable now. Correct. They're You've got the you all, know. but what about in 2023? Yeah. Question. Yeah. So. And when you're really, because you you'd be ending up doing a lot of treatment that, that again would come with significant health economic uh,
0: issues, uh, I just don't see it. I'd justify, I just stage. don't see it. Yeah. Maybe relegated to the realms of research for yet another decade. I suspect so.
1: That's yeah, I, 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 you may be a point where you assess plaque composition and you tailor your guideline directed medical therapy so mm-hmm. if you look at like an access point for a PSK 9 inhibitor an access point for another clinical expensive yeah so you, like could, you could almost say you could almost use CT in the same way as well that if you've got these plaque features that we d- determine as high risk and you've got a know a rupture score of five or above like i've just made that <laughs> like up Did that. No, that, yeah i think it's good. Like, can we, good can we market that can, yeah. can we mark that before somebody be the rupture score Yeah. So, <laughs> so if you've got a high rupture score <laughs> then you know that somehow gets you repath- well, glycerin in yes. it gives you something else yeah. you know um now whether you do that with intravascular imaging or another modality i think probably non-invasive, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's got to be non-invasive. It's just hard
1: to as sell much as someone I love angiogram. Yeah, as much as I love
0: doing Ivers and yeah. OCT, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to buy it. Yep. I think I'll finish with this question because I think it's one that you're really well-positioned to answer for. You're quite heavily involved in training of new interventional fellows and you're obviously an expert in intravascular imaging. Are we training our new fellows appropriately in intravascular imaging for interpretation? Because we spoke about a barrier being... Well, I have someone who's never used this before, now suddenly it's in my lab, I don't really feel confident interpreting this. I think it is exceptionally
1: centre-dependent. Um, I'm very proud of our intravascular imaging training that we uh, have for the interventional fellows here that rotate through the Heart Hospital. Um, and I see that as they translate out into their consulting jobs over the last five years, all of them use intravascular imaging as part of their routine care. OCT, IVIS, they're just happy doing it. So... I think if if exposed as a fellow, it, it really does stick. That's where I got my exposure. It stuck for me. Mm. It's not, um, though, consistent in every centre within the state and certainly not within the country. Um, you know, we talked at the right at the start about mentorship being critically important. And if your mentors are not telling you that this is something you need it's to learn from, now, yeah. you're not going to do it. Mm. And so I think as a... A, as a country, our training is inadequate, but you can get good training within Australia if you seek it out. Yep. Now, we're trying to reach out to a lot of places. We try and do didactic training, and you know, I do have the, the privilege of teaching on various Ivis and OCT training days and courses around um, Australia and further afield. Um, so, you know, but the didactic training is great but it doesn't beat the hand-on mentorship training that you can get from a fellowship. Seeing the images and interpreting Absolutely. them on the fly. And thing. showing how it changes your practice. And that that's that's when people get hooked on it. When they do it and they think, my God, I never thought that yeah. was what I was going to
0: say. thing I thought looked perfect. Oh my, god. yeah, perfect. and it just,
1: and you can see it. You can see it change. You know, you can see people who have not got any exposure and they come and work with you for six months and they leave just as a convert. They're yeah. just converted. I've not seen any you seen fellow... go the other way? No, and think I'm I've not seen any fellow who's came here who's not done any who went, well, that was
0: a complete waste of time. <laughs> and,
1: you know, they've all gone on to do it. So I think it is just something that once you do it, you, you're going to get hooked on it.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, well, you know, you've certainly made the case for intravascular imaging. Thank you very much, Dr. Adam Brown. really been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for
1: your time. Thanks for listening.